Rule 62, Episode 4. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of Rule 62. And today we have a very special episode. Joining us is Shane Raymer from That Sober Guy, Paul Churchill from The Recovery Elevator, and Michael Hamilton from the UK. And what we're doing is a sober panel discussion meeting. We're picking a topic and then we're each giving some feedback. We're also inviting our listeners to ask questions and join in. So as you listen to this episode, you'll see that certain listeners have called in, they went to the website, They went to the leave a voicemail button, they recorded their question, and then we responded to it on the air. So please feel free to do so. You can go to the Share Podcast website, and on the right-hand side, you'll see a red leave us a voicemail button. Just go ahead and leave us a message with your question or a topic you'd like to discuss. So let's dive right in right after a message from our sponsor. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. All right. Hey, everybody. This is O from the Share Podcast. And today is our very first official sober panel meeting. Joining us today is going to be Shane, Paul, and Michael. Guys, introduce yourself. What's up, folks? This is Shane Raymer from That Sober Guy Podcast. Hey, great being here with you guys. My name is Paul Churchill from the Recovery Elevator Podcast. Hey guys, Michael here. Privileged to be here. Michael Hilton from UK, England. Awesome. I love it. All right. So Omar Pinto here, Share Podcast. And today's topic is going to be why you got sober. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it off here and, and talk a little bit about why I got sober. Fair enough, guys? Do it. Yeah. Yep. Let's go. All right. Let's roll. Um, well, the reason why I got sober, I'm going to try and keep this to a minimum, but the bottom line was that I got sober because I could no longer get high. All right. I had been, you know, the first time I drank, first time I used drugs, I discovered something that was so wonderfully um, magical that had been missing in my life for so many years. And of course, I wanted to do more and more and more of it. So the first time I did cocaine, which was my uh, rock star beginning and then quickly my rock star bottom, I discovered something that was so amazingly wonderful, made me feel so good that I just wanted to do it every single day, like from go. Um, But it quickly turned on me. It turned on me horrifically. And in the end, um, I could no longer get high. And um, one of my friends that I was getting, I was partying with, a very close friend of mine, uh, he's not in the fellowship, and we were partying like rock stars, and he had stopped doing cocaine and was just only doing weed. He was on the marijuana maintenance po- program. And um, I was just on, a, just on a bender, just really bad. And one day he pulls me aside and he says, he goes, oh, do you, do you know what you're doing, man? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I know what the fuck I'm doing. And he says, um, 
are you, I, buddy, I don't think you know what you're doing. And, you know, I obviously didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I just wanted to get as far away from him as possible. And so I said, he said, you're chasing a high, man. You're never, ever, ever going to feel the same way you did when you first got high. And I just remember when he said those words to me, you know, at first, I, I just wanted to get as far away from him as possible. But then I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He goes, dude, I used to do this. I used to do blow. And I remember how wonderful it felt in the beginning. And at the end, it's done. You know, and it's true because it went from being this most amazing drug where I wanted to be out with people and partying to something where I was hiding in my closet, you know, you know, waiting for the fucking gremlins to come get me. You know, every time I took a bump, I was like chewing my fucking shoulder off. All right. I couldn't sit still. I was sweating like a fiend. Every time I blow my nose, you know, chunks of flesh and blood would come out of my nose. You know, it wasn't fun anymore. But I recognized you know, and it wasn't in that moment because days later, I just remember one day I was sitting there blowing shit out of my nose. And, and I just remember what his words were. His words were, you're chasing a high, man. You're never going to get that same high again. You know, and, and, and I started having this small spiritual awakening that I didn't recognize as that. I, I, just, I just had this thought in my head that I was like, oh, my God, you know, maybe, maybe I'll never be able to get high again. You know, so, so then, you know. Fast forward to the last time, to, to one of the last times I used was when I was at home. I thought my heart was going to explode out of my chest. I'd done so much blow, you know, and then I, I just grabbed a bottle of whiskey. I'm trying to down this bottle of whiskey. I'm taking a bunch of pills. I'm smoking a bunch of weed, and I'm just repeating this over and over again until I passed out. And at one point, I was just like, God, I just hope I don't wake up. I just don't want to wake up from this, you know, um, but I did. I woke up from it. And this fleeting thought came into my mind, this fleeting thought that I remember that 10 months ago I'd been to a therapist and he'd said, I can't help you. You're an addict. You need to go to meetings. And I jumped up out of my bed and it was either grab the nine millimeter Beretta that was in my, my nightstand and blow my brains out or get to that therapist and get to a meeting. And I just put on my clothes. I rushed out the door. I went to him. I got directions to the meeting and I went to a meeting and then I sat in that meeting for the first time and I heard a bunch of other guys telling my story. And that was the day where I said, you know what? I'm going to get sober. I know I can get sober because these guys got sober, you know? Um, and that's my story. That's why I got sober. Uh, yeah, for, for me, this is Shane, uh, me getting sober, man, it's, it's, it's even just to say the question, all these thoughts start racing through my head. I think there's a lot of different reasons. Um, but the, but probably the simplest one, um, is that I was just tired. I was literally just tired. Um, I was tired of, of being insecure with myself. Um, I was tired of living, living this false reality almost and not knowing who the fuck I was. Like I literally did not know who, who I was, who Shane was, um, you know, and as, as the, the alcoholism, the addictions with drugs, um, not dealing with, with current situations, whether it was financially, um, or, or in relationships as those kind of those, those situations progressed. And as they got worse, I literally, um, I literally too, just felt like I just wanted to, wanted to die. Really. I really didn't, I really didn't care. And all this time, you know, I, I, I had been blessed with this, you know, beautiful, supportive wife 
And, uh, towards the end of my, uh, the end of my, um, you know, using an alcoholism, my daughter, you know, she was, she was born and I had made this vow that I was going to, I was going to change and, you know, fists in the sky. And, um, you know, I was ready and, and I was, I, you know, at least, at least my intentions were, were, were ready at the time, but intentions don't really mean shit. If, uh, if you're not going to stick to them and if, if you're really not in that, in that mindset. Um, so, you know, and I, I've, I've shared this story, I think once or twice, and, and this was kind of the moment for me that a light bulb went off. And it's funny because it didn't, it didn't immediately change me. It still took about another six months to a year, I think somewhere in between there. But one day I was doing my routine, right? This was kind of towards the end. I was, I was, um, I was going out. I would go out to the garage every morning when I woke up. I'd I'd take a couple bong rips. I'd get ready for the day. That's how I started my day every single day, and that went on throughout the day, uh, whether I was at work or mowing the lawn or whatever I was doing. And um, my daughter happened to walk out after I took a, you know took a couple rips off the bong, and I was ready to get back. You know, I think this was sometime in the middle middle of the daytime, right? And um, and she she couldn't have been more than two at the time. She was little. And I was just finishing up. There's probably still some smoke in the garage and I was walking back in and she said, daddy, it smells like evil out here. And like, it just, it literally felt like someone punched me in the gut because I was just like, oh my God, like, where is that coming from? And it's, it, it, it was something, it was almost surreal to me because something spoke to me in that moment. It, I, I felt like it wasn't her. It was her just transitioning um, or transferring that thought or the, those words to me to like, Hey, wake up, dude, you're the shit you're doing is not only affecting you health wise, mentally, physically, it's affecting your family. It's affecting your kids. It's affecting the people that love you, you know, your job, all these important things that, that I was blessed with at the time. So fast forward a few months later, I'm fucking white knuckling it. Every day, I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. Boom. Noon. I'm fucking drunk. I'm drinking. I'm trying to get bags of cocaine so I can sober up and go home. I'm staying out late. I'm doing stupid shit. I'm driving drunk every day. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get pulled over. I didn't, I fucking didn't care. And, um, you know, back to, to bring this full circle from, from my first, my, you know, my first words is that I was just tired. I was literally just over it. I could not literally do it anymore. And I was willing to go to any length to stop. And so I threw my hands up fucking literally and I surrendered and I felt that humility of all of the shit that I had done and the stupid decisions I had made. And, um, and, and I gave it up and I went to my wife and I said, I need help. And, and thank God, you know, she was there to support me and I got the help that I needed at the time. And it's been a journey. You know, the days aren't, the days aren't perfect, but, uh, one thing I can say is that I'm, I'm sober today. And that's the most important thing. So that's uh, that's really why I got sober. Yeah, Paul here from the Recovery Elevator. And why I got sober, there is a common trait with all addicts, alcoholics, and that's selfishness. I got sober for myself. And what I mean by that is a lot of people get sober temporarily, including myself, out of fear. A lot of people get sober for a loved one. They, they feel like they will lose their spouse or for a parent or a brother or a daughter or just a loved one. They'll say, look, I'm going to get sober for you. That really only creates 
a little bit duration of time of sobriety. You know, in 2014, in July, I got a DUI while driving to work. And kind of like Shane said, I welcomed it. I was like, finally, something that is going to force me to get sober. And literally within two weeks later, after being so scared by these legal repercussions and the danger that I could have caused while driving shit-faced at 4.53 p.m. on the afternoon, not even at nighttime, we're talking daytime driving to work, I could have killed somebody. And that got me sober for a long time of, I don't know, 13 days. And within two weeks, I was drunk driving again. And I like to think myself as a pretty intelligent dude, but I was drunk driving with a broken taillight. I mean, you don't get any more, I would say stupid, but that's not the case. And I don't say stupid because this is an addiction. And the reason why I got sober is when that light bulb went off about a year ago, right around September, well, it was my sobriety date of September 7th, 2014. And sober right around 14 months. But it's when that light bulb went off where I finally got a hammered into my dome that this is an addiction and this is a disease, right? And that's not even a debate. For example, like in 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism as a disease. Addiction is a disease. So once I finally got that into my dome, I was like, wait a second, like all this stupid shit that I've been doing, it's not because I'm a weak person. It's not a moral failing. It's not poor judgment and character or whatnot. It's a fucking disease. It's a thinking problem in my mind. But when I had that first drink back to, you know, rewind till I was like 12 years old, I knew that I was on to something big. I was chasing that high that I got from alcohol. Hell, my jokes were funny. Girls talked to me. I was cool. I felt like I was part of the group. And ever since then, I was chasing it. And I was a normal drinker for probably five, six, seven years. But this addiction was just like one lap ahead of me. And it was always, it always made that turn before I did. It was just a little bit smarter than me. But it's that stigma. It's that goddamn stigma that we try to, to, to face in battle because you know, we see the television ads, we see the friends, the normal drinkers, we're like, whoa, 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 I got this. It's going to be different this time. Just like Shane said, I woke up a hundred times in the morning was like, whoa, I'm fucking done drinking. And then four hours later or 5 p.m., not only am I drinking, I'm blacked out riding a donkey or something like that. Like, it's just, it's a bad, bad thing. And the number one reason why I'm sober today is because I had an unsuccessful suicide attempt last year. I wouldn't even be here right now, probably if I wasn't sober. And life at 14 months sobriety is fucking awesome. It's really, really cool. It wasn't easy to get here. It's this blind leap of faith that everybody's got to take if they want to get sober. I mean, sure, I did the geographical cure a million times. Like, well, it's going to be different in this city. If I try this job, things are going to be different. It's not me. It's not, I, that's just the problem. It's not alcohol. It's the, it's, it's, it's definitely not, it's the location. And so I tried all these little cures, these little quick fixes, but the issue, it was the alcohol in my mind. It's an addiction. And as soon as I really put all that together, it all, you know, the light bulb went off last year. And that's what, you know, the HP, my boy O talks about that HP baby. It was on September 7th when I hit my knees or September 6th, the day before. It's like, you know, I was ready to go to rehab. And it was a finally that point, that moment when I was truly ready to this crazy HP thing, just like levitate in me. I don't know. It just, it came inside me like the wind blows through the pine trees in the forest. I didn't know it but it was entering me and I was ready to quit drinking. 
And that's why I got sober. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Michael, you're up. Okay, this is Michael. Michael Hilton from the UK. Um, why did I get sober? So a lot like what Shane was saying, I was I was exhausted. Uh, mentally, emotionally, I was beaten up. Uh, possibly my body was beaten up too, but maybe my body could have gone on a little bit longer. But I think mentally, emotionally, I, I was done. Um, after long binges of drinking, I, I used to urinate blood because uh, of kidneys and uh, liver issues. And even the fear of going on a dialysis machine, you know, the doctor's I used to go to the doctors with these problems and they say to me, do you drink? And I used to, I used to lie to them and say, well, I have the odd sherry at Christmas, you know, but it was um, uh, even the, even the fear of like going on a dialysis machine and things. And they, they knew that I was lying to them and uh, never stopped me from drinking. They never had enough power for me to stop drinking. So I just carried on with this, this behavior. Um, but my, my thing was this disconnect. I had this big disconnect from other people. Um, I just felt less than all the time. I never felt that I was as good as anyone else. I used to always look at other people and wish that I was them. I'd always like see someone that could read and write and think, why can't I read and write? Why, why can't I play football like this and soccer, however you call it? There's just a, a whole ton of things. And I just felt this massive disconnect. And, and when I took that drink, that just gave me that sense of being. It, it enabled me just to fit into the crowd. And, and we hear that a lot in recovery. Um, we hear that a lot in recovery, but that was my story. And uh, I went to get sober previously. Well, I didn't go to get sober, actually. I, I'm, I'm completely lying there. It was my ex-girlfriend and friends and family telling me that I had a problem with drinking. And this comes back to like what Paul said. You know, it has to come from within. I went to uh, an AA meeting with a friend of mine. And I sat there and I, and I was just lost. I was sitting there thinking, what am I doing in here? And I, I looked at the steps on the wall and... I looked at step four and I was like, well, that's not going to happen. And the first thing I looked at was the word God. And I was like, well, that certainly ain't happening too. Uh, because I wasn't there for myself. I wasn't beaten up enough at that time. And uh, the next night I went back in my local pub with my friend and said to him, uh, I went to that AA thing last night. What'd you go there for? And I was like, well, you know, I think, I think I've got a bit of a problem, but everyone else seems to think I've got a problem. And he said, how was it? And I, I said, it doesn't work. That AA stuff doesn't work. Not that I'd actually ever tried anything. I just went to one meeting. Fast forward two years after that, I was done. I was done. Um, I tried to commit suicide. You know, uh, I, I, I was on my bed after a night of binging of alcohol and cocaine. And I had a load of pills and um, I wanted to end it. You know, my mum caught me. This is the insanity of it. My mum caught me. It was about four o'clock, four or five o'clock in the morning. My mum come down and I broke down and she said to me, what's going on? And I just said, like, I'm, I'm done. I just want to end it all. And she said, look, we need to get your help. And I said, I think I need help. And she said, look, go to sleep and we'll get you booked in sectioned, whatever we need to do. And I went to sleep. And the next day I got back up, had a bath. And it was about 12 o'clock next day. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm off out, mum. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going down the pub. She said, you going, what? And I just said, well, yeah, no, it's okay. I've had a sleep now. I'm fine. So it's that, that insanity of, of, of um the drinking and the lure of, of alcohol so fast forward I, I went to recovery um i went to a meeting I, I stopped drinking and i always say the first thing to reconstruct in an alcoholic quite quickly is their ego i was beaten and i was going to a meeting i was sitting in the back of a van and my ego was reconstructing reconstruct reconstructing saying to me that i don't need to be here everything was all right it's going to be different this time you can do it by yourself so stopping drinking was never an issue for me. It was stain stopped. 
And that's been my experience. It was never stopping drinking. It was staying stopped. It was the problem for me. So I went to my first meeting and we pulled up and I sat in the back of the truck and, and I was like, guys, you know, I've got a bit of a bad stomach here. I, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go in. And they knew what I was up to and they dragged me in. I had two friends lucky enough that were in recovery. And um, I went into a meeting and I believe at that present time, that my ego deflated enough just to hear a message in the room. I did actually think I was in the wrong place though, because I had a lot of men coming up to me asking for my phone number, and I thought it was a bit fucking freaky at the beginning. <laughs> uh, later, did I know they were just there just to uh, just to call me the next day to see how I was doing? So, you know, recovery for me has got to come from within. It's got to come from yourself, not not from other people. Because in my experience in recovery, that's that's uh, I've never seen people stay stay sober for a long, long periods of time. Um, when it's come from outside so you know that was my story really you know i was just beaten and i was ready to, i was ready to change you know I was, I was on my knees i love it i love it thank you michael thank you thanks guys um i think we've got a pretty good idea of why we all got sober and um so so that was the introduction part of this first episode just to kind of give you listeners an idea of why we got sober and you know we'd also love to hear about why you got sober um, and then now moving forward, we've got some other questions that we've already received from our listeners. Now, um, we, we were muting each other uh, just so we could get our stories out. But there were some times where Shane was saying something or, or, or Michael was saying something. And I just wanted to crack up. So I think at this point, uh, you know, we should take our mutings off. And then, uh, Paul, you've got some recordings. I know Paul recorded some, some, some questions on the recovery elevator. Uh, why don't you play the first question and then Shane could kick us off uh, answering that question. Yeah, definitely. This is, these are questions that we recorded from the recoveryelevator.com website. The first one is from Jessica. It's a great question. I myself am in early sobriety and I struggle with this as well. So I'm going to play it real quick. Here we go. Hey, Paul and company. This is Jess. I have a question. At what point... Do you start having friends of the opposite sex when you're in recovery? Do you wait until after your first year of sobriety is complete? Or if you set clear boundaries and uh, are honest to where you're at uh, and let them know that you're only after a strictly platonic friendship, is that okay? What are your thoughts? Thank well, this is Shane, and I'm a drug addict. Hello, Jess. What's up, Jess? Sorry, I gotta be goofy sometimes, man. It's just, just the fun of it. But um, so, interesting story for um, you know that I could that I could kind of share to relate to that. Uh, I had uh, I had. Well, I'm married. Okay, so first of all, let's get that out out of the way. So when I get home from from um, rehab, literally nine months to the day that I got home, like damn near, maybe give or take a couple of days, we had my son. So I didn't waste any time getting out of that 30 day and getting after it. Right. But in your case, this is going to be a bit different. Um, I think that I, I think in my opinion, we need to focus on ourselves and that that's, that's my opinion. Um, you know, like I think all of us had mentioned it at one point when, when we were just kind of sharing why we got sober is the fact that we're not going to be able to get sober and stay sober unless we want to do it for ourselves. And that's it. Like there's, you're not going to do it for, you know, your, your kids or your wife or your grandma or your mom or your best friend or your job, any of that stuff. It just doesn't work like that. You have to really want it. So 
and I'm sure there's exceptions to this, you know, that, um, that, that have, have been made. So I, I wouldn't say this is the all end, um, by any means, but in my opinion, I would stay, I, I would stay away from, from anything that may jeopardize my recovery, um, you know, within the first say six months to a year, uh, that, that would be my, that would be my opinion. I would uh, really focus on myself. Um, I would create relationships, um, uh, but, but I would, I would try, you know, to keep them on a, on a, on a friendship and a recovery based level while I'm getting my head straight, while I'm getting the, the things around me situated that have been a mess for, for a long time. So that's probably my take on it. And thanks Shane. Uh, Omar here. I'm an addict. And, um, as far as relationships goes, I'm going to give you my, um, probably a more woo wooey sort of answer because, um, you know, I, I've got 12 years uh, clean and I've been in a lot of relationships in recovery and it took me 10 years of those relationships to find my wife. So just give you an idea of just how fucked up and how completely, you know, my inability to be in a relationship was um, when I first got into the program. And the suggestion was for me, don't get into a relationship in the first year. And I'm going to have... That's my suggestion. My suggestion is always going to be if you can stay out of a relationship in that first year, it, it becomes it becomes your higher power. You know, that's what I have learned. You know, when I first came into the, the program and, and I first started going to meetings, I was beat down and I was desperate and I was just on the verge of losing my marriage, which I ended up losing my marriage. My daughter had just been born. So she was just a brand new baby. Um, my focus was on getting my wife back and having my family. And my sponsor told me over and over again, if you don't do this for yourself, you will go back out and relapse. And five months into it, I relapsed because my focus was on getting her back. So when I came back, when I came back into the rooms and I, you know, went to my sponsor, he's like, look, I already told you, if you're not in this for yourself, this is a selfish program. And for that first year, this has to be about you going to meetings, working the steps, staying away from people, places and things that used to that will trigger you to go back out and drink or use. All right. And a relationship is just going to immediately is going to take your focus off meetings because, you know, if you've got a meeting routine. All right. And this person gets out of work at the same time the, the meeting starts. And you're like, oh, well, you know, um, I'll go to a meeting tomorrow. You know, I, I want to go out to dinner with this person, you know, and then that one day turns into, you know, maybe two days. Right. And then the relationship starts going well, because in the first 30 days or 60 days of a relationship, everything is fucking fantastic. You know, you're running around chasing each other all over the place, having the time of your life. And you forget all of a sudden that, you know, 30 days, 60 days ago, you know, you, you scraped your way into a meeting. Um, so, again, um, just a suggestion. All right. Just uh, like they always said to me. But, yeah, my suggestion would always be to try your hardest to focus all your energy, everything, all your energy that you have into that first year of recovery of just going to meetings, working steps um, and avoiding those triggers. So uh, that's 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 my take. Michael. OK, thanks for that. Um, I'm going to share my story, my experience around this. Uh, um, I was a womanizer when I, you know, most I know many, many alcoholic men that weren't womanizers. This is the odd few here and there. But I was a womanizer and it was a big thing for me that like I used to cheat a lot. Um, and when I first came into AA, I still thought that behavior was acceptable for probably the first 
three or four months until my sponsor sort of got hold of me. There was a there was a, a young girl that that came into she'd been about for a little while, she'd been about longer than me, and she came to our meetings and um I've made a beeline for her to make friends with her and we was calling each other a lot and we was on the phone for three or four hours. And it was getting in the way of my recovery. It was getting in my recovery. Like I was always saying to her, let's go out to meetings together. And we was now and again, but it was more about what I was looking to get. So it's always about your intentions behind things. It's always your intentions. Like what, what are you looking for? And I like what Omar said as well is it does fuck up your program. It does fuck up your program. Like you, you start becoming dependent. Like I've very rarely met someone new into recovery that's not trying to seek approval from someone else or um, trying to be liked or loved by someone else to make them feel better about themselves. So my question would be: Is is that your intentions behind it? If it's purely friends and you and you set your intentions, I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But always ask yourself: What's your intentions and, and what are you looking for from from what any relationship you're getting into? Now, um, my wife. I met in recovery, like I was two years sober um, and she was a year sober and I met my wife in, in recovery and we're now married. So now for me, if I was in, in a meeting and a girl come up to me and asked my number, a newcomer, I would probably sort of refer her to another lady and, and I would sort of ask the question why she would be after my number and I wouldn't necessarily take a, a newcomer female's number because there's, there's plenty of women to speak to her. Um, not because I have no fears of, of that again, doing that sort of behaviour again, but that's just sort of a boundary that I've set up for myself because I know what it's like when you're new and you're seeking approvals and you want to be liked and loved. So I think it all comes down to what's your intentions behind it? What's your intentions behind it? And personally, for me, it's it's about working on yourself. It's focusing on yourself. Be selfish and work on yourself. That's the most important thing. Beautiful. Thanks, Michael. All right, Paul, you're up, buddy. Yeah. First off, it is great to be part of this panel. And I'm glad I went last on this question because my pen was fiercely taking notes. Me being only 14 months of sobriety, this question hits home with me. And it's cool, again, being on this panel, we've got Omar Pinto with 12 years of sobriety. He's like the, the Elvis Crespo, the Richie Ballons, <laughs> or like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and I'm like the Justin Bieber here with my, with my poodle here. It's just like, you know, green, new to the scene. But it's cool. And, and, and for my take on this question, Really, and if, if if you get a dating advice from me, that's like getting stock tips from Bernie Madoff. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> but my learning experience with this question, my short 14 months in this quality sobriety is you've got to be upfront because there was always that question when I was desperately trying to get sober and I would go out with a girl saying, oh, if this girl becomes my girlfriend, I'm going to be happy and I'll be able to quit drinking. But we'd be at a bar. And I would just always dread that question. Hey, you want to drink? Well, you know, I'm on a diet. And then there was this thing called ginger beer that came out, which is the main ingredient of Moscow Mule. So it's non-alcoholic ginger beer, but the label says beer on it. So I'm like, oh, this will solve a lot of problems. And it, but but the pod, the best part about this podcast is that everybody knows I'm doing it. And even girls that I ask out on dates, they know already what they're getting into. And I don't want to say it's like a bad thing, you know, but they know everything. They're already accepting of what, of who I am. And as, as far as the first year goes, when I was first got sober, of course, we've just already been said, we all 
look to seek that approval from people, but I had nothing on an emotional basis to commit or to give to any relationship. There was an emotional void in my body that I was trying to fill, but I couldn't give any of that emotional capacity back to anybody, quite frankly, because I had zero of it to give. But after each month of sobriety, working on myself, I eventually got myself into a situation where I could get into a relationship. At 14 months sober, I'm not in a relationship, but I'm open to the idea. I'm going on a couple of dates this week. I'll let you guys know how that goes. But all three of these dates coming in the next like two to three weeks, they know about the podcast. There's nothing, there's not going to be that awkward conversation of like, oh, you know, I'm just I'm on, I'm on some Atkins diet where you can't have alcohol. Like, it's just <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. It's just straight up like, Hey, sweetheart, I'm an alcoholic. You know, mm. do you like pizza? It's just, that's it. Mm. I just tell him I'm pregnant. Sorry. I can't drink. With you. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, did you say you're going on two or three dates? Are these with the same girl or different ones? No, I, I hit a year of sobriety you know, two months ago and I asked my sponsor, and he's like, well, we like, you know, it, it's either your sobriety or the ninth step. He's like, but yeah, if you want to, if you feel comfortable to go on some dates and, you know, I asked, it's a numbers game. I asked five girls. I got, I got two yeses and one of them I had to convince. <laughs> so I got three, I got two and a half. Uh, so yeah, I'm going out with three girls this upcoming week and it, it should be fun. I'm going to say this now. If my sponsor would have said to, uh, after the ninth step, I, the first step I would have started on would have been the ninth step. <laughs> <laughs> He's speaking about to you, Michael. Dude, I, I, I feel like I feel like I've been married so long now. What does that sound like? Like asking somebody on a date? Like what is that, Paul? Like fill me in on that. What does it sound like, real quick? Well, these days nobody picks up their phone, so it sounds like thumbs furiously <laughs> typing on your on your cell phone and backspacing fifty times, and then your thumbs fiercely moving forward. Oh, Got I can't it. reword it that way. And then you just send the dick pic. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes. I'm just kidding. I've never, I've never done that. Um, <laughs> Don't ask Shane that. <laughs> oh, fucking great. I love it. I love it. All right. So uh, that takes care of question number one. Let's move on to question number two. And this one we're going to let Paul spearhead. Uh, so uh, let's go ahead and play that recording, Paul. All right. This one's from Jessica. Hey, Paul. Uh, this is Jessica in Colorado. Calling to inquire a question on your thoughts about the idea that people in addiction, um, I've been told that we have a issue with all things, including drinking too much water, drinking too much coffee, just the obsessive um, overindulgent tendencies in all things, not just drinking. So I've noticed that with, I don't let myself not finish an entire glass of water or Things that are simple, but do you think that that's a common denominator in all this? Thank you. So I'm going to answer this one real quick before we get to the more experienced guys with age over beauty. Is as she said the word coffee, I was shaking an empty coffee on my desk right now. I've really got to be cognizant of that behavior. Look, I'm not drinking alcohol, so is 15 cups of coffee okay? It's still kind of that buzz that I'm chasing. I'm not even joking. That caffeine buzz, that kind of like out of mind presence. So yeah, I think I'm an alcoholic, but man, it's, it's not like I can dabble in cocaine or coffee. It's going to go right down that path. And that, that's all I got on this question. What do you think? Oh, all right. Thank you. Uh, Shane, I'm going to let you spearhead this one next. Um, yeah, I, I mean, alluding to the addictive personalities. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, it's something that, um, that's still, I, I I'm, I'm an all or none type of guy. I either want it all or I want nothing to do with it. There's not much middle ground with me. 
Um, one of the things that's, that's funny too, is like, uh, the obsessive compulsiveness of cleaning. Um, I mean, I'm like a, I'm like a, a tattooed Danny Tanner with a bigger dick. Like I run around and I'm fucking literally <laughs> keeping shit. It has to be in order. It has to be in its place. Like I need it there. I have two young kids. This shit literally drives me crazy. So it's that addictive, um, personality that those addictive tendencies where we really have to be uh, like overly obsessive about things that, um, you know, still till this day, maybe it's not just alcohol now, thank God it's other things, but yes, I mean, it's, it's totally normal. And, uh, the good news is Jessica, that you're kind of recognizing it and you're seeing it because I think that's the first part of it is okay. Yes. I have these, these, um, these issues still, I have these tendencies. How do I, uh, how do I continue to kind of work on them and stay conscious of them when they, when they pop up? All right, Michael, I'm going to let you go next, buddy. I want to follow you this time. Okay, my friend. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I dived, I dived a period of time and I've got a lot of YouTube videos on this. I dived very, very deeply into the, uh, biochemistry, uh, side of, of addiction. Uh, it was something Bill Wilson got into just before he passed away. And funny enough, when asked on his deathbed what was the greatest thing that he ever, the greatest thing that he ever come across, um, I think it was the, the the niacin. He said niacin, like looking at the biochemistry and rebalancing brain chemistry was the greatest discovery he ever come across. And he was working with a nutritionist and that. And maybe this is for another show for, for me to maybe go into the logistics of it, how important it is for people in recovery in that to sort of stabilize blood sugar levels. And um, there's this big, big, big fucking myth out there and i've got to say this and it does my does my head in you know i was sitting in a meeting and this person was telling a newcomer you know if you if you get if, you, if you're feeling like cravings and things like that, load yourself up on chocolate and um, that's just the biggest myth i've ever ever come across in recovery um because our body's craving sugars and it does absolutely nothing for our blood sugar levels but i won't go too much into that now so the addictive side of it with like, like coffee now it's a very common thing um with people in recovery with coffee and stimulants and things because they've just overcome drinking and uh, going to that extreme with it. And I'm a great believer in as well is what you tell yourself is what you're going to show, how you're going to show up and what you're going to experience in life. You know, and if you say to yourself that I, I struggle with just about everything in life, like no matter what I do, then that's probably how you're going to show up. Um, but for me, for myself now with food and things like that, it's not really, an, it's not an issue for me. Um, I focus my energy more on other things. Like I'd probably say my, my studying could be a little bit addictive, like reading self-development books and, and helping people and things like that. You know, So I've turned some of that into a good thing, but it can soon turn into a bad thing if it becomes over-obsessive and things like that. So I think it's just being mindful of what you're doing um, at that present time. And, and the main key thing here is not to beat yourself up. If you drink two cups of coffee and then you sit there giving yourself a fucking hard time about it, that's going to serve no one. You know, you've drunk the two cups of coffee, move on with it. You know, don't beat yourself up. Hopefully that answered the question. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Um, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that I learned, because uh, I go to AA meetings, I go to NA meetings, uh, I go to any 12-step meetings. I love 12-step meetings. Um, but one of the reasons why... I stayed in NA as long, you know, all these years and I got, I worked the steps in the NA steps uh, in the working guide is because my sponsor had told me, he said, listen, in this particular fellowship in NA, it doesn't say anything about alcohol or cocaine or food or anything. It says addiction. 
and I'm addicted to everything. I'm addicted to more. I, you know, I, I've got a big giant jar, a, a, a big container of coffee that I fill up all day long when I'm in the office, okay, to where I'm like jittery. Okay, so that's still 12 years later, you know, I'm still drinking coffee like a fiend, you know, so, so that's still a, a part of my program. Um, I'm addicted to food. I'm addicted, I'm addicted to sex, porn, you know, I'm addicted to anything that gets me out of me, that, that takes me out of who I am and how I'm feeling in this morning. If I'm sad, I'm going to try and stuff it with ding-dongs or fucking McDonald's or, or, or you know, I, I don't know if you can drink too much water. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that was part of the questions. I think when no. drink too much water, can, can you drink too much fucking water? You can, you can eat too many ding-dongs. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I mean, I would go on, I would, I would drive, I would do the sneak moves, you know, and pull into McDonald's, you know what I mean? Eat it in my car get rid of the wrappers, you know, so when I got home, my wife wouldn't see it. You know what I mean? Just, you know, uh, I only laugh because I'd done that same shit, bro. It's so fucking hilarious, man. Oh, man, I don't want her to see. I I, I was just the one preaching, why are you eating that, that, that shit the other day? And then here I am eating a fucking chalupa and shit. <laughs> I don't give a shit what it is. If it's deep fried something, a deep fried banana, a deep fried pile of dog shit, I'll eat it. You know what I mean? And it... And it but again, it all revolves around that one question, okay? What is it about the way that I'm feeling in this moment mm. that I don't want to feel that way, so let me put something in. Let me smoke a cigarette. Let me drink some coffee. Let me eat some McDonald's. Nobody's ever talking about like, oh, man, you know, the other day I was really feeling bad. So I ordered this, this salad with tuna um, and, and, a, and a tea. You know what I mean? And, 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 I had, and I had six of those. I had six of those salads and a tea. You know, it just doesn't happen. It's the healthy things in, in, in our lives that, you know, it's like I don't want to do the healthy thing. I want to do something that, that immediately gets me high. I'm going to go to Cinnabons, and I'm going to order the six-pack of the fucking little Cinnabon. I'm going to get so high on sugar that I won't be able to sit still, and then I'm going to be shitting my pants for the next hour, okay? Um, and, and so, I, I, you know, again, well, what Michael was talking about, which is – you know, the myth or people will tell you just eat a bunch of sugar, eat them just the opposite. There are mm. treatment centers that will that won't allow you to eat sugar while you're there because mm. it will change your state. So if you are trying to change your state with whatever outside external issue, the question you have to ask yourself is, why am I doing that? And what, what can I do uh, on a more positive note? Can I go take a CrossFit class for three hours, you know what I mean, until I pass out? Can I go swimming, you know, 15 laps until I, you know, until I can, you know, pause and reflect for a moment and just take a minute to think about, you know, what's going on in my life right now that I'm trying to reach outside of myself. So anyway, that's, that's my take on it. Anybody else got some feedback on can, that one? It seemed I like I opened up a can of worms. No, yeah, I'd like to add something really quick to that, and it has to do with what you were saying about doing the good things because we all know what the good things are that we're supposed to do. The problem is is that I know for myself, I feel resistance on those good things. So the fact that I know what is good, maybe to eat the salad, maybe to go do CrossFit, maybe to go lift weights, go on a run, whatever it is, the, the hurdle here is getting over that resistance. And so um, – I always use this this quote that I learned from uh, from a counselor in rehab, David, who was an amazing dude. 
And uh, he would always say, move your ass and your mind will follow. And so in other words, all I got to do is I got to get up and I got to get over that little hump of just, just getting there, just getting to the gym, just ordering, you know, the healthy, the healthy food. Um, once I'm able to kind of do that, then everything will fall into place. It's just a matter of when we feel, when you're feeling the most resistant about something, um, you know, that's probably a good sign that you should move ahead with it because it's probably one mm-hmm. of those things where, um, you know, that resistance can, can fuck you up really, really bad if you let it win. So first staying conscious of it, recognizing it, and then knowing that it's there and addressing it and not just putting it aside and going with the sugar or going with, um, you know, whatever, whatever thing it is that becomes that obsessive behavior. Mm. And I, I think the powerful thing is there is, is like what you said, oh, is, is what are you trying to change? What's this, like, you know, what are you trying to escape from? Because ultimately that's what you're doing. A dopamine fix to feel, to feel different. And, um, early, early in recovery, I say early in recovery, it's been two years now since this has, since this has happened. But in, in one thing that I slipped up on a few times in recovery was my gambling addiction. Um, I slipped up on it a few times and what that taught me was, when I was feeling disconnected with life and I wanted to change the way I felt about myself, gambling was the thing that I went to. It wasn't all the time, um, but that was the thing that I turned to when I knew I was feeling fear and anxiety and stuff like that. And it taught me a very good lesson to start being aware of of myself more. It's been two years now since I've ever gambled, uh, gambled and I don't, don't have them them thoughts anymore, but become a bit, but it took a long time. It may come a long way to become aware of those thoughts as when I started feeling down and depressed, I would turn to gambling to change the way I felt about myself. Awesome. Paul, you got anything else on this? Or are we good? Yeah, real quick is I think today, and I say I think because I got this damn addiction in my head, I think today I'm far away from a drink. I really do. Short of my beautiful standard poodle Ben getting hit by a car today and I'm knocking on wood, I don't think I'm going to take a drink today. But what I'm not far away from are taking those small actions, you know, the, the addictive behavior, like it's like the 10 cups of coffee. I love Reese's pieces. I love donuts. I love to sleep in. It's those small addictive actions going down that lead me down that road to a drink. And it's, I gotta be cognizant. I'm like, wait a second. I've had three donuts today and it's the sugar. The sugar's huge. Hmm. Uh, you, you know, it, it, there's this thing called the runner's high. Like I hate to run, but look, yeah. I get a high from it mm-hmm. and I've run seven miles and I can't walk the next day. It's just, it's just strange. You know, my body and my brain are wired differently than, than a normal drinker. I say I'm an alcoholic, which 100% I am, but I guess in general, I'd also fall under that category, fall under that category of an addict. Just because I'm an addict, I would be addicted to meth, cocaine, anything. And we, and you guys, you know, people that have probably dabbled in cocaine and stopped. I would not be, you know, I would not fall in the dabble, the dabble do category. I would just do it, do it, do it. And until I just hit the bottom or, or got off the elevator. So yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's it. Great stuff. Um, Oh, I think we got, we got two more questions, right? We do. We do. Okay. The next one, uh, why don't you go ahead and play that one? And then uh, we're going to let Michael start this one off. Love it. Here we go. Hey guys, do you use AA alone for your recovery or are you implementing other programs and belief systems into your recovery with AA? Curious, thanks. I don't know if you guys could hear that, but basically it was like, do you guys use just AA or do you use other programs and incorporate that into your recovery portfolio? 
All right, Michael, you're up, buddy. Okay, sorry. I just had to mute myself. My little boy just running the room going crazy. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, um, I've incorporated um, different things into my recovery as well. Um, like I, sh- I shared with you two guys, that, that book, the first book that I read on self-development, it was a few years back now, and it started me on a journey of, of self-development and really sort of learning new techniques and and questioning my thoughts and really just self-discovery on a journey of self-discovery. And I found it, you know, the big book talks about it, you know, um, the big book sort of says, you know, go and look for these other spiritual teachers, you know, and I, and I don't mean to be disrespectful here to, to the big book or, or the program, but I think the big book in itself is like kindergarten when it comes to spirituality comparing, compared to what else is out there. I hear a lot of people saying that all the answers, everything, all the answers are in, are in the big book. And I kind of disagree with that a little bit. I think, you know, don't, don't, don't close your mind off to other, other spiritual teachings and other things that are out there. You know, I'm, I'm very big on the, on the self-development thing and um, working on myself every, every day, you know, every day I've got a discipline where I work on myself every day and, and use these tools that I've got to question my thoughts and, and see, visualizing where I want my future to go and how I want to show up in life and how I want to be as a father and how I want to be as a coach and all this kind of stuff, you know? So, you know, what I would say is go out there and, and, and read some of these books, you know, like the simple book what I, I sent to you, and Shane is like, who moved my cheese? You know, it's a really simple book, but it just, <laughs> it, it's just a, it's a book about fear, you know? And um, I'll, I'll put a link in that into the group actually, if, um, if Paul's okay with that, you know, and it's just a really, really simple book, but it will just really open up your mind. And, uh, you know, I, I use a lot of other tools, man, a lot of other tools as well. Meditation, which is part of the program as well, but, it's something I'm very strict on with myself. Hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Michael. Uh, you know, every time you say, who moved my cheese, I just crack up. I don't know if it's the name of the book or your accent. You know, every, you know, who moved my cheese? Who moved my cheese? My Cockney Essex accent. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I'll, I'll jump in here next because I'm definitely part of, of more than one fellowship. Um, I have, I started out in NA and I spent a good five years in NA. And while I was in there, uh, my sex addiction just got out of control. And I started an uh, SLAA meeting, which is sex and love addicts anonymous meeting. Um, more recently I'm fatter than ever. So I I joined an OA (laughs) meeting, you know, <laughs> you know, well, so easy, <laughs> uh, Overeaters Anonymous. <laughs> so uh, you it. know, put a put a plug you know put a uh, a plug in the jug for the alcohol. Put a plug in the in your ear your, your pie hole, you know, so to speak. <laughs> but you know, um, here's here's my take on this. And I've had a few of my uh, listeners who send me emails, and they go to both fellowships. They go to AA. They go to NA, and they have people that snicker at them or sneer at them for for going to to more than one fellowship. And you know, my question has always been to to anybody who had ever asked me that. It's just like, well, let me ask you a question. In the OA meeting, NA meeting, AA meeting, SLA meeting, um, where is uh, God in those meetings is God in, in either any one of those fellowships or you know and and they always kind of give me that same kind of look like oh yeah so for me God is in all this and I use the word 
God loosely, my higher power, HP, uh, or you know, Harry Potter, you know, whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the fuck works for you. You know that that Harry Potter is a big ass book. Yeah. You know what I mean? So 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 is the big book. So is the Harry Potter book, and so are these other fellowships. You know, it's it's like there is something wrong with me. I need to be able to identify with other people that have similar ailments as I do. So I want to go to a place where I feel comfortable having a conversation and sharing about, you know, what I shared about earlier. Like, I don't share about the drive-thrus at McDonald's and the sneakiness at an AA meeting. It's just not part of what I share about. But when I go to the AA, the OA meetings, I'm talking about how it's 9 o'clock at night. I know my wife's asleep. I'm sneaking in there to see where she hid the fucking chocolates, you know, that kind of a stuff. And it's that sneaky thing. And I'm, I'm eating in, the, in, in secret, you know, and that just kind of brings back all those memories of, of the things that I used to do that sneakiness of getting mm-hmm. around things, and I need a place where I, f- uh, where I can feel comfortable and share about this. One of the things that I have learned more than anything else, if, if there's nothing else that I learned, that the most important part of recovering is to be able to share openly and honestly with other like-minded individuals. And if I am unable to share and then get feedback, then I'm by myself and I'm all alone. And the last thing I want to be is alone, because let me tell you something. If I am all by myself in a room, I am alone with an addict. Okay. And that is a dangerous place to be. So that's, that, that is definitely my take on different, different meetings. If you feel comfortable in other meetings, go for it. If somebody sneers at you, you know what I mean? Just walk away or ask them, oh yeah, where's God in these meetings? That'll blow their mind. All right. So who's, is he here? <laughs> I got this next, Omar. Great stuff. Great stuff. Kelly, great question. And it's something that I like to call the recovery portfolio. I was sober for two and a half years from 2010 to 2012 and a half. And my recovery portfolio was pretty bleak. It was a couple meetings and I was basically just a dry drunk. So right now, for me, it's black and white. I'm either drinking or I'm sober. And it's not like I don't I really don't want to experiment with the fine line of like, well, you know, how much is just enough to get by? So I'm not so 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 I'm not having to relapse and drink. You know, it's not like you're studying for the SAT and you, you, you shut that book five minutes earlier, when, but you don't get into you don't get into Yale, but you still get into Columbia. It's either you're drinking or you're not. And so in my recovery portfolio right now. And this panel is part of my recovery portfolio. On the top of the screen, it doesn't say an AA-sponsored event with meetings. No, this is a completely different event that has nothing to do with AA. Is it more important than AA? I don't think so. Maybe it is. If it helps me stay sober, it doesn't really matter. So my recovery portfolio, I just keep stashing papers, contacts, website links, meetings around, around town. My, my phone is getting filled up with numbers of other, other like-minded individuals. And, oh, you just said about me being in a room by myself, the alcoholic mind in my own brain is a scary, dangerous thing. I wrote that down. I love it. Oh, you're right. It's a network. It's the recovery network is what's becoming a huge part of my recovery portfolio. Yeah. Shane, what you got on this? Yeah, man. No, the, those are good words from all, all three of you guys. Um, you know, some, some similarities in there too, I think. Uh, I, I really think that, you know, for me, it's about finding a program that works for you, you know, and, and let me be very clear about this. Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, it fucking works. There's no doubt. Okay. It's worked for thousands upon thousands of people. Has it worked for everybody? No, 
You know, of course not. But that there's there's a lot of different elements that would go into something like that on on why it didn't work. Um, so also the self-education thing is huge. I think Michael was kind of alluding to this about, you know, educating yourself on, you know, not, not just recovery, but, you know, on, on your faith, on your higher power, on whatever it is that, um, you know, that, that you're struggling with. We, we have a responsibility to ourselves, um, to educate ourselves, you know, and, and that's, that's going to be, at least for me, that's a focal point of, of myself and my recovery. And especially when I first started, I was so hungry just to get after it and just start learning about myself and learning about why, you know, why my life was the way it was. It was like this, like, like this rabbit trail. I found a little something and it just led me to the next thing, the next book, the next podcast, the next meeting. Um, it just continued on. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a few things real quick, Kelly, I'll just list that, that I, you know, for me, so you, you have AA, I think for me, AA and rehab was really like my foundation. Like that's where this started for me. Okay. And then it kind of branched out to finding my higher power, you know, um, getting involved in the church for me has been huge and my wife and my family as a whole, and just my relationship with my higher power, being able to put my struggles, my, um, you know, my, my anger, my resentments, those types of things that can really hinder my recovery. I'm able to give that up and just release them and surrender to it and say, look, I'm not in control of that shit anymore. You know? And then of course, podcasting, um, you know, meetings like Paul was saying what we're doing right now, this isn't an AA sponsored event, but it's working. You know, it works for us. Mm. It's what we want to do right now. And this is a form of recovery. So um, the last one too, relationships with positive people. That's huge in the recovery. And and you'll get that from the rooms of AA, NA. You'll also get that just from um, once you start learning more about yourself, you feel more comfortable about yourself, you feel confident, and you're able to open up because you're okay with the person that you are. And you'll start meeting people and, and um, surrounding yourself with positive influences. So uh, yeah, I, I really think finding a program that works for, for us as people, you know, o, O's program might not work, you know, the same way for me as it does for him, you know, same with Paul might not, Paul does something. It might not work for Michael and vice versa. So, uh, Kelly, yes. Um, very good question too. Thank you. All right. There's, there's one thing I just want to quickly say, oh, um, which you can sit in a room with a thousand people, um, in my experience in recovery, and you can all be on a similar sort of page at a big book, but not everyone's going to agree with everything what the big book says, because it is open for interpretation of parts. And that's been my experience with, mm-hmm with that so you know with with my with my gambling i went back to i went to some gamblers anonymous meetings i went to about three or four why just because i wanted to get identification with gamblers i got that identification i got what i needed from there and then i, I just stayed in my aa meetings so yeah excellent anybody else oh, okay we're good all right that was great awesome all right so we got one final question this one comes from gavin how do you cope with sober christmas new year's holidays birthdays Etc. All right, who's going first on this? This is this is like a diet. This is uh, you know when's a good time to break up with a girlfriend, or you know when's a good time to start a diet. When's a good time to get sober? A lot of people say I'm going to get sober after the holidays. Mm. That, that's BS. Like if, <laughs> if if you're if you're not ready to get sober, you're not going to get sober after the holidays right now. And so there's no other better time than right now with the holidays coming up to get sober. Here we go. And my quick two cents of how to get through these holidays sober. And it's going to be a quick bucket list right now. 
First off, you can't do this alone. If you think you're going to go in there with no accountability sitting around that Thanksgiving table, what I mean by that is when you get up out of your chair and walk in the kitchen and pour yourself a Bud Light or whatnot or a glass of wine, and nobody else around that table, family members, your loved one, knows what's going on, there's a very slim chance you're going to pull the sober through the holidays things off. And that's when I learned, as soon as I told my brother and my mom and dad the severity of my alcoholism, that's when other people got on board. And the accountability started. It was a hell of a lot easier to go to a bachelor party in Las Vegas. It's a true story. After I sent the guy who was getting married and the guy who was going to stay, you know, the guy who's sharing a hotel room with, I drafted an email was saying, Hey guys, I'm not drinking in Vegas. I'm really struggling with alcohol. So that type of strategy, the accountability, letting them know that I am not going to be drinking over Thanksgiving. That's a public goal right there. If you don't write down your goals, you're not going to achieve them. And if nobody knows your goals, including yourself, they're not going to get achieved. The other part of it, don't put yourself in stupid situations. If you're at that Thanksgiving dinner table or the Christmas parties and stuff like that, and, and you don't think you can do it, just don't go. I can guarantee you right now, if I were going to go to a Christmas party with my parents and I told my mom and dad and my brothers, like, hey, look, I don't feel like I can go to this, this Christmas party and stay sober. I'm going to sit this one out. You know, if it, there's no parent in the world who's going to be like, hey, dude, you're being a pussy, Paul. Come on, let's do this. Or like, or a friend. I mean, they're just not going to do it. Maybe a friend that's not a real friend. They're going to be like, man, that's a great decision. I totally respect that. Go home or don't, you don't need to come. So those are two, two quick things of advice. Number one, create accountability. Let everybody know what's going on. Number two, don't play with fire. Don't put yourself, don't put yourself in that situation that you don't think you can be successful in. Excellent. Thanks, Paul. Shane, you want to take it from here? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Paul, great points right there, man. There's, um, you know, there, there's, um, sober holidays, man. It's, it's, it's really tough actually, especially in that first year. Um, and I think the toughest for me was family because right. We all love our family. We, it's our family, you know? So, so how do we, how do we go to Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner and, uh, you know, Obviously, there's drinking going on, right? It's it's our own problem. That that's where well, I'm the one with the problem. I have to deal with it, and it's nobody else's problem. And I mean, I that's that's my mentality for you know a long time, which which is true, right? But at the same time, um, I think that a good point to go into this is the understanding that nobody is going to understand. You know, no, most people should I say are not going to understand, especially at first why you're getting sober, you know, why you are sober, why you're choosing not to drink. Um, because alcohol is so, so socially acceptable for many of us in our families, we grew up with it, right? Whether it's social drinking or, um, you know, and it leads to whether it's a, a straight alcoholic family, you know? Um, so we have to kind of expect that going in, you know, it's, it's when we start getting our feelings hurt that you feel like they're not giving you the respect or, um, they're not understanding. Well, they're not, they're not going to understand. And, uh, I think it was, Oh, and I, you know, I recently went through, through something, um, kind of very relatable to what we're talking about right now. And, um, and I think it was, Oh, that brought up, you know, he's like, he's like, you know, you can't expect them to, you know, you can't expect them to understand what you're going through because what, what does that do? You know I mean? What, what does that do for them? What it does is it, it forces them to take a look in the mirror themselves and people aren't going to do that. And we shouldn't expect them to, and expect those, um, you know, those reactions to that, um, piggybacking on that an exit plan. 
just like Paul was saying about putting ourselves in these situations, let's say we find ourselves in one of these situations that we said we weren't going to put ourselves in because we all know it's happened. Um, you know, devising a plan to get the hell out of there in a hurry. If you need to, if you're with your spouse or, you know, some, someone there that you need to, you know, that you're riding with or something like that, you should set that up ahead of time. Hey, look, uh, like I do this with my wife. If I'm, if I'm in a situation where I might be feeling uncomfortable, babe, I'm going to have to leave. I'll come. I'll give you a little tap on the shoulder, a kiss. I got to go right now. That way she already knows, you know, it's already set up and I have that safety net to where if I start feeling the urge or I start counting motherfuckers drinks because it's, you know, it, that's just what I do. Then I can get the fuck out of there in a, in a hurry. So, um, holidays aren't easy, but like we've all been kind of saying, if you want it bad enough and you're willing to do whatever it takes and put the work in, then um, you know you can get through the holidays and and be sober and be clean and be happy and be proud of yourself. I love it. All right, Michael, you want to go next? Or you want me to go? Uh, no, I'll go. I think I think uh, Paul and Shane have, have covered it quite well. Really, you know, I'm going to come at it for two. I'm going to come at it from the AA angle, and I'm also going to come at it from a, a little bit of a mindset angle. Is and other holidays can be difficult for some people at some at, at times, you know, especially early recovery. But when you look at it on the, the grand scheme of things is, is Christmas Day and Boxing Day isn't really any different to any normal day, really. Uh, birthdays, Christmases and things like that. I hear that a lot in recoveries. Oh, I don't I, I don't I don't think I'm going to be able to stay sober on my birthday. I don't think I'm going to be able to stay sober on Christmas. And it's more of the um, actual sort of. Uh, what we link those things to, you know, we link those things to just letting loose, drinking what we want, do what we want and things like that. So when you look at it like that, it's just another normal day. Try and look at it at that thing. It's just another normal day. You know, I'm, I'm just staying sober today. It's just another normal day. And like Shane and Paul said, um, what are you going there for? What's your intentions to go in there? Um, I know it's a fam- if it's a family thing, of course you want to be around your family, but have someone to be accountable accountable to, you know, like your sponsor or anywhere like that that you can call. And also things like Shane said again, if if you're counting drinks or if you're in an uncomfortable position, you can leave. You've got that. You've got that choice. You've always got that choice to to, to leave and um, maybe go to a meeting or go and speak to your sponsor. I know early in recovery that one of my meetings fell on a boxing night, a boxing day. And I went boxing day, day after Christmas and over the Christmas period at the beginning, I spent a lot of time in meetings of things because of the associating what I, I drunk a lot over Christmas and boxing days and new Year's. So the association, but don't put yourself in a position where you're going to get hurt. And our sponsor first said to me, you know, if you can, if you keep going to the barbers, you're going to get your hair cut. And in, and in first early recovery, I used to spend a lot of time in the pub because I didn't know what else to do with my life. You know, I'd, I swapped spending all my money on alcohol to spend all my money on orange juices in pubs. And my sponsor said to me, like, what's your intentions to go in there? Do you need to be there? You know, so the holiday season, yeah, I understand it can be difficult for people. But on the grand scheme of things, just look at it. It's just another day. It's another day in sobriety. You know, it's just another day. And, and, and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Perfect. Thanks, Michael. Um, you know, I'll piggyback off of everything here because, you know, I agree with everything. And there's for me, it's a strategy. Whenever you go into any kind of a situation, if you don't go in prepared, if you don't have a strategy, then you could walk into a situation that's unexpected. And, you know, you could, you know, remember when you're in a party and there's alcohol around, you're just that much closer to an open container. So it could it could kind of it could fuck you up. But here's one of the things that a few of my interviewees have mentioned something called bookending. I'd never heard it before. But bookending is where 
you call your sponsor or somebody in the fellowship right before you go into this event, whether it's a party or a wedding or a Christmas holiday or whatever the case may be, and then you call them right afterwards. And if you need to, you can also call them somewhere in the middle of the book. All right. So you start in the beginning by calling them, say, I just got to this party. All right. I'm going in. If I need you, just be ready for me. And, and now with the, with the modern miracle of social media and texting, you can send them a text. You can hit them up on Facebook, whatever the case may be. And then at the end, when you're leaving, you go ahead and call them up. So that's already a mental strategy as you're going in. You're already preparing for battle. Because if I walk into a party, you know, 12 years later and people are drinking, not a problem. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But if for whatever reason I turn the corner, walk into another room, and somebody's got to pay to play to blow on the table, that's going to fuck me up. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see that and go, oh my God. All right. I'm going to freak out. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, seriously. I'm not going to be prepared for that. <laughs> who, who prepares for a Christmas party with a plate God, of blood? All yeah. right. But, but you see, I already know these things. All right. So I have to have this kind of strategy going in. And another thing, too, it's like if, if you don't want to go, then you shouldn't feel obligated to go. I mean, yeah. how many times were you out there using like a fiend, like a maniac? And it's like, hey, is Steve coming to Christmas? I don't know. I don't know if he's going to make it this year to the Christmas party. He might be out fucking banging dope still. You know, so, so yeah. you, you, you miss all these events, all these years. You don't show up. You don't show up to birthdays. You don't show up to events. And then all of a sudden you feel like you feel obligated, like I have to go. No, you should never feel obligated to go. And uh, I, I think it was either Shane or Michael that mentioned it. it's like, hey, just take a pass. Just listen, guys. This year I'm just, I'm just not feeling up to it and, and I, I'm not going to make it. Another thing is that was mentioned is, guys, I've got a serious problem with alcohol. I can't drink. So please just be mindful of that. All right. I would appreciate that. Just, I don't give a shit. When I first got sober, there was always that big cloud of anonymity. But whenever I was around my family, I was talking about higher power and, 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 and getting sober and I don't drink anymore and blah, blah, blah. I was running around like with a fucking, you know, one of those speaker phones. You know what I mean? And, and, and they, they were actually, they actually thought I joined some weird cult. <laughs> all right, because I was talking about I was talking about God and higher power all the time everywhere. They they actually stopped inviting me. You know what I mean? Because I just got, like, Fuck I, you, I, I became I became the weird guy that doesn't drink. You know, yeah. but guess what? I didn't drink, and that was the most important thing. You know, walking in always prepared and having a strategy. You know, when you walk into any kind of a situation is important, and as long as you have access to someone in the fellowship or just a friend, anyone that you can reach to and say, man, I got to get out of here. Or like Shane says, you know, I, I tell my wife the same thing when I go to different parties. I go, listen, we're going to take separate cars because I know how your friends get. All right. And if I need to, I'm just going to I'm just going to be like, hey, cool. Hey, guys, great to see you. Uh, I got to go. I got to bail. You know what I mean? And I don't really care if they like it or not. I'm not I'm really, really too concerned with whether or not people are, are uncomfortable with me leaving a party too early. OK, my number one concern is always going to be for my sobriety, you know, period. All right. That's what I got. Anything Thanks, else? So. That's good stuff. Bro. That's good. All right. Excellent. All right. So I think we have now uh, reached the end of all the questions and answers. Does anybody have any final things to say before we close up this uh, first official episode? Oh, no, it's been no, cool. I, I, Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, it's been great. It's just great. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of it. It's been amazing. Yeah, awesome. I want to thank Michael, Shane, O, for being part of my recovery. And this is Sunday morning where a lot of people out there are watching NFL football. 
Michael, I don't know, you know, you got, you got your football out there, but you were all together staying sober, chatting with each other. So thank you guys for being part of my recovery and help me stay sober on Sunday. Excellent. Okay, guys. Oh, here, share podcast closing out, saying a shout out to everybody. Shane Raymer, that sober guy, Paul Churchill, recovery elevator, Michael Hilton. Thanks again, guys. Thanks for joining us. Cool. Yeah. All right. I think you can kill the recording. Kill the recording. Okay. There we go. Call recording off. Oh, let's do it again. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.